I was in uh, grad school in Buffalo, New York. And I remember one night going to um, a gay bar. Buffalo actually had a pretty, pretty cool um, gay scene. And I saw a pink triangle as decoration in the gay bar. And I was like, wait a minute. And it was about that same time, um, if I'm not mistaken, that um, Lady Gaga's Born This Way came out, like the music video for it. And the very opening scene of her music video is like this big fluorescent pink triangle. And so here I am like learning this horrible history of like Holocaust, concentration camps, Nazi Germany, and then seeing the same symbol in a gay bar in you know this music video that's you know uplifting a, a an LGBT positive message. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is such a special interview, not only because I met Dr. Jake Newsom in San Francisco at the Queer History Conference. So just like you've all heard now from Jessia Tate, if you haven't, that's the Queer Modernist episode. And then soon, in a few days, you're going to hear from Dominic Jaynes. Uh, so there's been a few Queer History Conference podcasters um, who I've gotten to podcast um, guests, I yeah. should say. But they are podcasters in their own right, influencers in their own scholarly right, too. But I want to introduce Jake to all of you. I mean, I know a lot about Jake. But W. Jake Newsom, which I have to briefly ask, what does the W stand for, Jake? William. Okay. So <laughs> Dr. William Jake Newsom, uh, because I always see the W in all these bios. And I'm like, what yeah. is, I have to ask him. Okay. <laughs> so W. Jake Newsom is a scholar of American and German LGBTQ plus history, uh, whose work as a public historian reaches global audiences. He currently works as a museum professional in Washington, D.C., and you can find everything at his uh, Instagram, which I love, at WJ Newsome. Uh, and we have all the links to his work, including what we're here to talk about in our show notes. We have the link to Pink Triangle Legacies. So coming out in the shadow of the Holocaust. And um, I know Jake is going to speak to this. Um Yesterday was a very important day. So I'll let you, you know, take it away, Jake. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's really um, great to be here. I can't believe that it's been so long since we met um, in San Francisco at the conference. This is, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're, you know, having so many of the, the conference attendees here on your podcast and, and helping uplift, you know, the, the scholarship and the work that they are doing. So I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, yesterday, January 27th, uh, the world uh, paused to recognize International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, it's on January 27th every year as a way to honor um, and mark the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. Um, it's also, I think, a, a time for us to, you know, as we are remembering all of the um, the Nazis victims of course the um, Jewish people were the Nazis primary victims it's mm -hmm. also a chance for us to uh, really stop and think about the fact that um, the not the Jews weren't the only um, victims of the Nazis and and after the Holocaust was over not all of the Nazis victims were remembered and honored or commemorated equally um, which really is the focus of my new book Pink Triangle Legacies as you said um, which, 
you know, focuses on the, not only the experiences of LGBTQ folks during the era of the Holocaust, but also their decades long struggle to achieve, um, number one, just even recognition of the fact that they suffered um, and, and were persecuted during the Holocaust. But then, you know, the continued um, efforts and, and campaign to, to be officially recognized um, commemorated and even memorialized first in Germany and then then the rest of the world. Yeah, no, thank you so much for all of that. And something that I actually did, be like knowing that I was going to interview you, is I reached out to my friends who um, know a lot about Holocaust history. They're Jewish. Um, and just up front, I'm like interfaith, so I'm Catholic and Jewish, mm -hmm. and I'm gay. Everyone here knows I'm gay. That's not a what? revelation. <laughs> right. Really? He's gay. Um, but yeah. so I think we're going to definitely start to unpack and dissect the gay Jewish intersection, which exists, mm -hmm. but isn't like you're saying, isn't unearthed. So I'm so happy you've unearthed it for all of us with Pink Triangle Legacy. So bravo. Thank you. I mean, just the amount of research you did, which we'll get into, but I reached out to my friends and they're very, um, some of their family, one in particular, um, my friend Lori's cousin, Joanne, um, is a docent at the NASA County um, Holocaust Tolerance Museum. Yeah. And um, I went on an amazing um, just tour of, it's, if anyone lives on Long Island, it's really well worth to visit. Um, and there is an area about the Pink Triangle, but I even asked, um, and Joanne got into that. So I was so appreciative to you, Joanne, if you're listening about the pink triangle history to bring it to bear, because you're right. It's not something that is talked about because of a shame with uh, the queer history. And, um, but I did ask my friends, did they know about the pink triangle? And they said, no, like, even though they know so much about Holocaust history with even their family members, who, you know, unfortunately, you know, were lost or, you know, subjected to the pogroms with right. the Holocaust that um, they didn't know what the Pink Triangle was until they like went into this history, say, in a museum. Like, actually, it, it wasn't in the general public's knowledge. And I'm assuming that's something you encounter. Like, let's start there. Why? Um, where did you encounter the Pink Triangle? Like, where is this an image you first saw? Yeah, you know, Andrew, I, um, so I grew up in a, in a Christian household. Like I, I um, in my small town, didn't know of any Jewish people, or at least if, if I knew them, I didn't know that, you know, that they, that they were Jewish. I, I, so I really, you know, in my academic research have also not only learned about this history, but have learned a lot about Jewish culture and you know practices and community and Jewish life which has really been um a, a wonderful thing to explore um I as a college student um just was really interested in German history World War II and I took every course that my university had to offer on like the Holocaust and and Nazi Germany um but it, it wasn't until my very last semester, I mean, I was like really, literally almost about to graduate um, when a guest lecturer came to campus and gave a lecture um, on uh, Hitler's Pink Triangle Prisoners. 
And it was the first time, this would have been like 2009. Um, so even after four years of studying this history, it was the first time that I had learned about, you know, the people that we would today recognize as members of the LGBTQ community. And I remember being really upset. I'm kind of just upset in general that like, how did I go through this long? And number one, never stopped to think about all of the Nazis, non-Jewish victims. Um, but also as you know, this in college, like I was in the process of coming out and exploring what does it mean to be gay? Like, how, how do I relate to the world today and history? And so like, I was also kind of mad at myself for not stopping to think like, why hadn't I asked about people like me during the Holocaust? And so, you know, I, I was introduced to the pink triangle as a symbol and as, you know, as, as a chapter of history in an academic context. Um, as I said, I, I graduated very soon thereafter and went on to graduate school and decided that, okay, I was going to start studying, you know, and researching um, the history of the men with the pink triangle um, in, you know, for, for my dissertation. Um, but really, as I was, as I was learning about kind of the, the fate of gay people in Germany, 1933 to 1945, um, I was in I was in uh, grad school in Buffalo, New York, and I remember one night going to um, a gay bar. Buffalo actually had a pretty pretty cool um, gay scene, and I saw a pink triangle as decoration in the gay bar, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" And it was about that same time, um, if I'm not mistaken, that um, Lady Gaga's "Born This Way" came out, like the music video for it, and the very opening scene of her music video. It's like this big fluorescent pink triangle. And so here I am like learning this horrible history of like Holocaust, concentration camps, Nazi Germany, and then seeing the same symbol in a gay bar in, you know, this music video that's, you know, uplifting a, a, an LGBT positive message. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, 
just visit theglreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it just struck me, like, how did we go from concentration camp to gay bar? And, and really that set kind of in motion the, the thought process that became this book, which is really about not just the, the origins, origins of the Pink Triangle, but also, you know, all of its legacies and in, in the preceding decades. Yeah, well, and that's something that you do so well, Jake. Like, what I love is even... Um, to bring this history to bear, you start in um the Weimar, Weimar Germany, right? Which is like right before Nazi Germany. Many of us know that period if you have ever seen Cabaret, the musical. And I'm actually now recalling as you're talking that one of the most public displays of the Pink Triangle for me was when I saw the revival with Alan Cumming recently, a few years ago. And he actually, you know, the MC bears the pink triangle at the end because yeah. the MC is um, known as being gay. And unfortunately, we know his fate of going to a concentration camp. That's like the foreshadowing yeah. of, you know, everything falling to pieces at the end of Cabaret. Um, yeah. But, right, you talk so much, though, about what happens before, which is what I don't think a lot of people know. So I'm excited for you to talk about it. I do remember though, isn't there a book called Gay Berlin? Um, yes, who wrote uh, Gay Berlin? Uh, that's by a, a wonderful scholar historian named Robert Beachy. Um, yeah. And and his that book is is just, number one, it's it's brilliant scholarship. But I one of the things I so appreciate about Gay Berlin is Robert's writing style and it's just it's very accessible um to mm -hmm. folks who you know it's who who aren't scholars and are you know trying to get into the theoretical debates um and he really paints this picture even going before the Weimar period of how and why not just Germany but Berlin in particular became this space for really the very first um organized political gay rights movement um, in the world, and the as he calls it, the birthplace of a modern gay identity, um, and it's just it's in a lot of ways I like to kind of think of of Pink Triangle Legacies almost as a sequel to Gay Berlin because I, I do try to pick up on or or where you know he leaves off with this with this flourish flourishing of gay um, or really you know LGBTQ kind of across the board. Um, research and community building and political activism that is happening um in in berlin in the in the late 18 and early 1900s yeah well that's something that i love about christopher isherwoods which cabaret you know yes. based off of but then cabaret the musical is actually based off of a play right <laughs> the camera what is the camera it? yes the camera yeah um and then it's based off goodbye berlin mm -hmm. um but to show that what you're talking about, this modern gay, almost 
liberation type movement happening in Germany. Um, and you bring to bear in your book, like at the beginning, you talk so much about there were gay magazines, there was this art culture. And it kind of reminds me like in America, even though I don't would not say it's analogous, but it reminds me of the roaring 20s, yeah. that there's a type of openness sexually that is flourishing. But then there's this backlash that starts to come with the Great Depression in America. And I mean, talk about Germany, right? All of that is through a depression period that there is this backlash. You're right. Yeah. And, and it's so important to highlight, I think, um, the fact that you know the Weimar Republic was Germany's first um, democracy, right? This was a, a time where, in fact, it was because of this new democratic form of government that um, really who you know, the folks that became kind of the first gay activists asserted that in a democracy, um, you know, all individual citizens have certain liberties. And, and one of those is to freely develop one's sense of identity. Um, they, a lot of times they use the word personality, um, as long as it right, doesn't infringe on others. And so they, they tied this idea to being in a democracy. <clears throat> What I think is most telling um, as a kind of historical lesson from this period is that, you know, over the course of almost 20 years, um, LGBTQ organizers are able to build this, as you said, really dynamic queer life of political organizations, but also just nightclubs and bars and cafes and, and art and publications. And mainstream German society was mostly against this. And so when a right-wing party like the Nazi party starts, you know, gaining traction, there the Nazis know that even if um most Germans don't agree with all of their platform issues, you know, maybe maybe they maybe some Germans are like thinking that the Nazis anti-Semitism is a little bit too, you know, on the nose or too strong. The Nazis know that homophobia and transphobia will always get votes. <laughs> And so they they are very strategic about being clear and upfront from the very beginning that they, as a political party, are against all of this, you know, LGBTQ publicity that has taken um, taken on a whole new level in the Weimar Republic. And once the Nazis come to power, they're able to just completely destroy and, and force back underground the queer culture in Berlin within a matter of weeks. Right. So to me, that that historical lesson of even in a democracy, progress is always fragile, right? And that and that rights, just because you win them, doesn't mean they can't be taken away again. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, and we actually have a lot of cultural representations now, right? I mean, you probably know way more than I do of like TV, film, things. I think especially now, there's started to be maybe you're part of this movement, which is wonderful to look at the 1920s into the early 30s of um, how much vibrant LGBTQ culture was existing. I mean, Victor Victoria, that's the Paris example, right? In the late 20s, early 30s, I'm trying yeah. to remember. But that is also part of that artistic movement. Um, and Sigmund Freud even is mm -hmm. part of a really interesting, um, you know, group of, those who are looking into sexuality. I mean, he brings sexuality into psychology, although we could say there are 
maybe homophobic readings he does, but at the same time, he acknowledges it. So, right, it's this, you know, he's kind of caught in this middle, like he's trying to explore it, but uh, he also pathologizes, which, you know, is its own um, issue to dissect. But to be so open about it, though, is interesting. I mean, you talk a lot about Magnus Hirschfeld, who is a sexologist, right? Mm -hmm. Studies sexuality. I mean, can you talk about Magnus Hirschfeld? Because he is kind of part of that Sigmund Freud. Absolutely. And actually, I'm glad moment. you brought up because um, one book that I'm finishing right, right now is a new book by uh, Laurie Moorhofer oh. called Racism in the Making of Gay Rights. And it's in, in a way kind of a new biography of Hirschfeld. Um, and so it's, I've only got about a chapter, maybe two chapters left, and I've just been kind of, devouring it. it it's just a really wonderful book and it, laurie puts hirschfeld in his historical context because i think more so in germany there's kind of been a a re rediscovery of hirschfeld in his work because he really was um the most prominent i'm not gonna say he was the only gay activist in germany at the time but he was certainly the most famous um he, he like went on a global tour all across asia and africa and europe and and north america um, and he's in modern gay or modern LGBTQ activists have kind of reclaimed him as a, as a gay hero. And in a lot of ways he, he was, um, he, he laid out the, um, rationale for, for why, uh, LGBTQ folks should be accepted in society, um, and, and not persecuted. But Laurie's book kind of says, all right, we we sh there's definitely a lot to celebrate about Hirschfeld, but we need to put him in, a, in in context, right? He was he was an imperialist. He he believed in you know empire, um, and and you know he believed in the separation of races, or at least that that the the existence of races, and that there you know were fundamental differences between you know white people and people of color. So like mm -hmm. the he, he Laurie does kind of um, put put him um, as I said in context, uh, but but without saying like, we can't celebrate Hirschfeld at, at all. It's just a matter of like, we have to have a better, more full understanding of him as a very complex person. Yeah, well, this leads me into, I think a difficult question right now in 2023, which is um, to acknowledge a forebearer of sexology, someone who's so open about sexuality, even Alfred Kinsey, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, Alfred Kinsey, though, was not as open about, I mean, Alfred Kinsey didn't identify as gay. So okay. I don't want anyone to think I'm saying that. Um, I'm pretty sure he identified as straight, if I'm remembering. Or did Kinsey identify as straight or bi? Ooh. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just, I'm not aware enough to, to weigh in on that. Yeah, but I'm going to say Alfred Kinsey definitely, you know, cared, like was more concerned just about... Um, like sexual knowledge of what yeah. was happening with younger people, especially younger men and mm -hmm. all sexualities. But I would say, I think he was more concerned, more interested, I shouldn't say concerned, more interested in straight sex, uh, um, straight sexual encounters. But yes. okay, we'll leave that where that is. But <laughs> um, back to Magnus Hirschfeld, that um, if I remember right, Magnus Hirschfeld is, was Jewish. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Okay. So that's an important point and important knowledge. Um, and 
Yeah, I think it's a tricky question. What I'm getting at is I'm trying to phrase it, but it's hard because I don't want to be like delving into quote unquote, a cancel culture argument or, you know, things that I think get really heightened and hyper an issue that I don't think is really there, which is that people are being thrown away. Like I don't really buy into cancel culture arguments Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like it starts to feed right-wing media and I'm trying to not delve into that. But at the same time to recognize that, he was doing so much good for his own expressing his own gay identity and exploration um, that what concerns me is it's important that we have critiques of maybe how he's part of say imperialism as all are in his culture who are intellectuals. So that to me is an intellectual elite critique it isn't necessarily a Magnus Hirschfeld critique. Sure. And I'm concerned, and I'm not saying you're doing, (laughs) you're not doing this, but I'm concerned that if we don't talk about him, then aren't we just recloseting him? And then aren't we just a part of a system of hiding the openness around gay issues from the Weimar Republic and Nazi Germany and almost, you know, shutting the door on all of this. Mm -hmm. And that kind of feeds into a type of homophobia and it can even feed into anti-Semitism, which unfortunately so many right now don't know what the Holocaust is, which is scary to me. Like very, I want to acknowledge that. Like that's frightening. Um, So yeah, that's my whole, like laying out my cards is I'm just concerned, like there's a critique, but then how far will the critique go where we're just throwing him back in and like not knowing who he was? Hi, everyone. This is Andrew. So I interrupt this podcast interview because when I'm not podcasting, I'm usually writing my queer scholarship or I'm teaching in a classroom or I'm just doing other queer male scholarship activities. So I want to talk about a company that I truly love and that I've used in my own classroom. It's Broadview Press, which is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. And I'm really excited because they are offering an exclusive 20% off of all of their books, if you use the code Ivory Tower. So that includes new um, literary anthologies, classic literature books, anything on their website. And just to give you a taste, every season here on the podcast, I always interview a Broadview Press author. So in the fall, it was Ann Stevens who wrote the book Literary Theory and Criticism. And we actually play a Wizard of Oz game with her at the end of the episode where I ask her to go through all of the different literary theories from psychoanalytic Freudian theory to Marxist theory to feminist to queer theory um, and ask her how she would approach the Wizard of Oz with that specific literary lens. And she does it. So thanks to Anne, but her book, Literary Theory and Criticism, is so intriguing. 
for either your students who you're teaching literary theory to, or if you're just a lover of literature and you want to learn more about literary theories and how to apply them to your own reading, your even love of film and television, it's such a great text. And also coming up in the winter season, we are going to have Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the book Pop Culture for Beginners, which actually is the first book ever that Broadview published that gives you a language around how to analyze pop culture. And for everyone here, you know that I love my Real Housewives and my reality TV. Um, so again, Broadview Press, they're giving you 20% off site-wide with the code Ivory Tower. So please head over to Broadview Press. Uh, you're not going to be disappointed. They offer everything for either the professor in your life, the student in your life, or that literary enthusiast. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Yeah, no, I think that that's, it's a, it's a fair critique um, and a fair observation. And that's one of the things that I really love about Lori's book um, is that they are able to approach the, the kind of not, I don't want to say reevaluation of, but, but even some of the critique of some of Hirschfeld's, you know, ideologies without saying there's nothing useful or nothing, you know, positive about this figure and we should just move on. I, I, I in fact, at the end of it, at least myself reading it, have a, a better um, appreciation for Hirschfeld's work and the fact that he was so steeped in some of these, you know, ideologies that were based on inequality, that he was able to then still continue to work towards building some type of political and, and legal equality for the gay community. Um, kind of just, it, it you know, speaks, um, speaks a lot about his work in, we have to remember, this is like late 1800s and early 1900s, just really yeah. um, path, what is it, groundbreaking, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you, Jake. And it is, it's tricky because it's also what you do so well, I think is, well, I know you do it so well, but to just tell you, since you're here with me, is that you're able to look at how the pink triangle is reclaimed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an interesting, um, it's such an important history because in a way, it's also how the word queer has been reclaimed, but there's also those in the LGBTQ community, I've had them on. Michaela Griffo is one um, who is a lesbian artist, but has a lot to say about how queerness gets identified to her as an identity. And she has a lot of problems with that. And that's all justified in my opinion. I mean, we can't just throw a label onto someone and say, that's how you identify. Yep. So there is, there's people who want things to be reclaimed, but I think the word queer being reclaimed is a little is different in my opinion than how the pink triangle as a symbol is reclaimed. So like, I don't know, do you see similarities in like a word or a symbol being reclaimed or is there differences in the history? I think that it is, um, I think there are a lot of similarities um, and even the folks that I interviewed for the book, um, you know, I would ask them about was there resistance to reclaiming the pink triangle? Did you feel comfortable with it? And so many of them said, well, you know, it's like, a, it's kind of like how we reclaimed queer. You know, the, it was originally this something that was meant 
to mark us in a negative way, to be derogatory. And now we're taking it and saying, you know what? <laughs> you can't use this as a weapon against us anymore because now it's mine. I'm going to claim it. I'm going to wear it without shame. You actually wear it with pride or use that that identity with pride. Um, clearly, there's still though a lot of people, not, I, I can't quantify it. There are people that, you know, of course, as you said, have problems with the word queer, rightfully so, um, who said, I would never wear a pink triangle. Um, and that's, that's, you know, absolutely 100%, you know, okay, and, and legitimate, too. I think, you know, when, when I go back and read um, and talk to some of the, the activists who were there in West Germany, who, who, you know, were the very first to reclaim the pink triangle, their reasoning behind it was a there was this big debate about if they picked the pink triangle as their you know gay liberation logo would gay identity always be tied to victimhood because mm -hmm. the the triangle was you know born out of a system that marked um well you know using the terminology at the time marked homosexuals as being deviant and criminal and, and worthy of you know being sent to the concentration camps and as yes you can reclaim it but there it would always have that anchor in history um and a lot of the activists that i talked to said that you know in in reclaiming it and picking it up for themselves it was in their mind not about tying identity to victimhood but instead just the opposite of saying you know we have so much power we have so much um you know agency that we can take this thing and turn it on its head um which actually act up did you know very um literally they turned the triangle upside down and and their their symbolism um and so to me i i find this as a as a it's about self-empowerment of, of a, you know, a gay or a queer person individually, but also of the community more broadly. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And it's something that I'm assuming was, well, I don't want to mind read, but I'm assuming just, you know, even with, you know, your religious stance, not stance, but growing up Christian, mm -hmm. um, that you were so careful and you are, to not like just assume things about Jewish persecution during the Holocaust, like to hide. I would assume the hardest part of a book like Pink Triangle Legacies is to not hide what like to not um, speak for the Jewish community who lost so much mm -hmm. lives and property and families trauma from the Holocaust, but also recognizing the gay oppression right that's it's tough to really tell those to tell the story of the pink triangle without you know not also addressing what happened to people with disabilities sure. um those who were right uh against the government who yeah. were political descendants um and also tell the story of those who i mean i'm just saying i keep saying gay because that's how the nazis would sure. refer to them um you know, there wasn't that. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there really was not language of LGBTQ categories. It was basically you're homosexual or not. Right. Yeah. Homosexual was kind of like an umbrella term that they, yeah. um, you know, they would have said homosexual man, homosexual woman um, that kind of just would have encompassed everyone. And they they certainly so they they certainly would have wouldn't have, you know, understood or or even used a concept kind of like LGBTQ of, of a, you know, 
a collection of multiple identities in a community. Um, they they didn't uh, they didn't believe that transgender or gender nonconforming identities were legitimate. They just would have you know a trans um, woman just would have been treated as as a gay man or as a cross dressing gay man. Um, and so yeah, that's you know one of the re I have this whole section of my book on terminology at the at the beginning because I want to on the one hand as a historian want to be accurate to what the terminology was you know in use at the time but also it's also problematic to only use nazis terminology right yeah. um, and so i have tried to to go back and and explore and describe people's actions or maybe if they used an identity to use it themselves kind of as a as a means of resistance of of to to you know push back against the erasure of nazi categorization and nazi um terminology and yeah. so you know back to your question about kind of the it's a, a tightrope yeah walk in a way yeah and and the tightrope is also kind of a good metaphor for you know the the as you mentioned writing um a history like this that didn't try to compare the suffering or the experiences of you know jewish victims versus non-jewish queer victims um, on, on the other hand, because the pink triangle was primarily um, worn by non-Jewish um, queer people. Uh, if the Nazis, if you happen to be gay and Jewish, um, the Nazis essentially just didn't, like your Jewishness was your, was like the main uh, crime, so to speak. And so like, then you were just labeled as Jew. Everything else was kind of just erased underneath the Jewish category. And so um, the 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 statistics, the history I write about in in the book, um, really is, you know, about non-Jewish queer victims, and of course I tried to 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 weave in those intersectional stories of queer Jewish experiences, um, and so in my doing the interviews for the book, I I would speak to people very explicitly about, you know, I would talk to Jewish communities um, about how do you feel, you know, of of this this community reclaiming a symbol from kind of the darkest moment in in Jewish history or you know Jewish experiences um you know I got a, a range of answers as as one might expect from well I'm not I don't really think that anyone should reclaim something so horrible um to you know it I remember one um, rabbi telling me it's not my place to tell the queer community what they can and can't reclaim if this symbol speaks to them you know, and 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 as a way to to organize the community and push for rights, you know, that's like that's their prerogative, and that that she, as a Jewish woman, didn't feel that she had kind of ownership of the Holocaust to be able to tell people how to relate to it or not. Um, and one of the things that I just wasn't expecting, and and maybe it was just kind of a blind spot as I was going into the research, is that so many of the key players who reclaimed the peak triangle were also were gay and jewish and like they felt that like their their inner their inner sorry their identity as you know gay and jewish that the pink triangle just really resonated more loudly um with with them um and so yeah i, I try to get into those those entanglements and, and intersectionalities uh, in the book as well no and i'm so appreciative because this is you know, well, I think you knew when you came out with this book, there's a lot of difficult conversations that happen when you're interviewed or even with, I'm sure, when you're 
like you said, you interviewed Jewish communities and also those who reclaimed it, who were those who reclaimed the pink triangle, who are Jewish, I think is a really important element because there's this book called Queer Theory and the Jewish Question. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it's this queer theory meets um, Jewish studies. Okay. It's like one of the only books in academia that really like head on intersects, whether it be cultured, but there is moments about um, the marginalization from the Holocaust that does look into the pink triangle. But also like you're saying, um, the Star of David is actually what those who are Jewish war. So that has, that is a reclaim, rec, uh, reclaiming yeah. of a, so the Jewish community did reclaim the star of David um, because right. I'm just for everyone's, I'm sure, you know, but it was the star of David and then it would have J U D E for Jewish for yes. Jew yeah. in German. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like I, um, I'm not weighing in on what's proper to reclaim or not, because that's yeah. not my place either. Mm-hmm. Like my feeling is though, if you want to display an image that you're now showing, this is my identity and I'm proud of who I am, mm-hmm. that's empowering. And, but I also know right now in our current time, there are people who are comfortable to wear a Star of David necklace. And there are those who are not because you do mark yourself as someone who's part of a community that's marginalized, right? Just like, um, a rainbow flag on a house or, yes. you know, the pink triangle. I mean, we have these, a Black Lives Matter flag. Um, uh, so I think though the intersection, I know though your book doesn't, you know, solely focus on it, but I was talking with you, Jake, you know, do you remember when you first learned about the film, but it was a play, but the film is more, in circulation of Ben, because to me, Ben is the only film that really does look at the pink triangle in its full complexity during the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I do focus quite a bit on, on Bent, um, in, in my book, because it was this watershed moment in, uh, not just in the U S but also in England and in, in West Germany, of kind of a, it, as you said, it was the first um, cultural recognition and, and and a way of reckoning with this chapter of history. Um, it first premiered in, in, oh, I should get this right, in 1979, I believe. Um, and so this was well before any yeah. um, professional scholarship was available on the topic, at least in, in English. And so Martin Sherman, the, the director and playwright, um, had to do a lot of his own research um, and, you know, uh, interviews with scholars, um, because like I said, there just was, there wasn't information readily, you know, published and available for him to, to build this story on. And one of the things I really like about Bent is that it starts out um, in the early years, right? And I think it, it it kind of has this kind of cabaret vibe at the beginning where, you know, the the, the gay community felt somewhat safe, right? And, and you can tell, okay, the Nazis have come to power, but there's this idea that, hey, maybe all of the, the progress of the Weimar era can't just disappear overnight, which of course it does. Um, but I, I really like that it starts out in showing the the, well, I was going to say gradual, but not so gradual progression of the the homophobic violence under the Nazi period. 
Yeah. Well, and for me, it's one of the most intriguing narratives. I mean, if anyone out there, if you haven't seen Bent the film, it's really well done. And I mean, Martin Sherman was born in Philly to Russian Jewish immigrants, which I think is also important um, because he's openly gay, Jewish. There is such an empowerment. I mean, maybe I'm just interested in, in it because of my own identity, but it does seem like a lot of these political, the um, reclamation, uh, how do you, I always say rec reclamation, but what is, how do you actually pronounce that word? Yeah, I say like um, reclamation. Reclamation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope that's the right reclamation, way. <laughs> reclamation, reclamation. Um, but that, what you detail with, um, even ACT UP, right? I mean, ACT UP to us is the most visible mm -hmm. of the pink triangle. I mean, you're wearing the silence equals death pin, yeah. which is ACT UP's motto, mm -hmm. slogan motto. And um, a lot of those in ACT UP were, are, well, still, ACT UP is still occurring but are jewish i mean i think of sarah shulman's work um i think also of the queer theorist um eve sedgwick or even judith butler um there is this link and i'm wondering is that um you know i don't want to say it's because of the intersected oppression in the holocaust but i i don't think that can be discarded i think there is something to the linked oppression that definitely, I mean, were you finding that there, that's what, back to Ben, that's what Martin Sherman does so well, is he looks at these linked intersections. Like, if I remember right, one of the men, he's not Jewish, he gets the pink triangle, like you've said, the other gets a Star of David, and the other doesn't really want to claim that he is gay. Like, there, it's a very interesting oppression conundrum um, yeah. that happens. But then they form this romance. It's, yeah, it's a really nuanced, complicated narrative that happens. It is, and and, and not without right some some complications, which I think, you know, even uh, Sh Martin Sherman would would you know attest that it's he put it in the the play or in the show to to make us think. I mean, um, you know, one of the characters, as you said, is like just vehemently against being identified as as gay and part of it is because he's been told i think um if i'm if i'm getting it right on the transport to the camps that like hey just make sure that you are not marked with the pink triangle you would rather be a jew than than you know be be a homosexual in the camps and so there's like this part of this you know maybe a fear that if i can be you know marked as as jewish instead of gay that i'll be treated better which historically it's just you know that's not accurate um but it also i think one of the things that i kind of bristled at that the very first time i i saw it is like ah why are we trying to like set up a competition between these two groups about who had it worse and not like well it becomes the oppression olympics is like our new term for that hi it's mary from true crime and academia You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. 
Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, but, you know, then I stopped, watched it again, you know, read, yeah. read the script more. And it, it is, I don't think that that was Martin Sherman's intent of like him yeah. saying there was this competition, but as a human experience going through the, you know, going through that, um, there would have been people saying, you know, trying to figure out ways to survive um, and, and, you know, escape um as much violence as possible but you're right there is a there's that you know for a period he does um you know manage to convince the the guards that he's straight and that he's not bent you know um and is labeled as jewish um whereas his his you know boyfriend lover uh, I've, I've forgotten exactly you know um their their relationship i guess um is is identified as gay and, and doesn't survive for very long um and so there's there i think there's a lot of guilt with the other character of like you know how did i you know was i so selfish that i tried to escape all of this and so it just it's it's a, as you said a really nuanced and complex story that i think when i have to when i when i remind myself that this came out in 1979 yeah it's just um really really mind-blowing and and this was the first introduction that most people whether they were gay or straight had to the the history of the nazis persecution of the lgbtq community um and you know it wasn't didn't come through um professional historical books or journalism or whatever it came on the stage which i think is just so important to me and one of the main messages of of my book is that after the Holocaust happened, professional, the, the, the historical profession, so including everything from like universities and museums, um, you know, research uh, organizations were complicit in the silencing of this narrative. You know, they, they, they would say that we're not going to uh, provide funding to, you know, anyone to, to research this. Archives were literally just destroying information on the Nazis gay victims. Um, Wait, and- even though, sorry, but even though the triangle is in that key, I mean, you know the term, but right, isn't anytime I've seen a Holocaust exhibit, you always see all the color coded yeah. triangles or you see the symbols of right. what stood for what type of. Um, what type of. Prison- what type of, I uh, see, what, yeah, what type of person. Yeah. Um, has been forced against their will into a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. essentially, and essentially these archives and, and kind of indicative of the beliefs of, of society as a whole would say, they it's not that they denied that gay people were ever in a concentration camp, for example, but they would say, no, they weren't victims. They were criminals that got what they deserved. So we're not going to, you know, essentially waste archive space in preserving the history of criminals. Right. So, I mean, this, this, that's what blew my mind when I started and and, and convinced me to write this book is that the silencing of 
queer voices after the Holocaust wasn't an accident. It wasn't just that, oh, you know, no one was interested in it. It was intentional. And it happened from the ivory tower. It happened from, you know, parliament. It happened from around the kitchen table, right? All these different facets of society knew what happened to gay people, but most Germans just happened to agree with it <laughs> and saying that, that it just was um, what happened to you. you know, it's what happened. It's what you deserved if you were gay. And therefore we're not going to classify you as victims of the Nazi regime. Well, and what's, boggles my mind is anyone who was in a concentration camp was uh, taken and imprisoned for something they didn't commit. No one committed a crime. It was their identity, whether right. it's, you know, religious based, whether it's sexuality, whether it's a disability that, you know, you're not in control of. I mean, basically, they all went against this. Let's just call it what it is, a fake ideal about the Aryan model, which didn't ex doesn't exist. Right. Um, and also a lot of it had to do with threats against manhood for this German masculinity model that, yes. you know, was Hitler's whole, um, you know, Hitler's whole, I don't even know how to describe it. It's basically, right. I mean, he had this idea about masculinity yes. and, you know, the third Reich, coming back to power, Germany going back to what it used to be like a hundred years ago. I mean, and you know, yeah. I thank you for bringing up gender and right. The ideas of, of masculinity and feminine and, and feminine. <laughs> That's another femininity. word. I, say. I got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because a lot of recent research has, you know, we we've focused on sexuality as a kind of an indicator of, 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 you know, who was persecuted or not. But a lot of um, recent research has shown the role of gender and the fact that if, if you were, for example, lesbian, um, but were more gender conforming, you had a better chance of surviving or not being caught. But if you were you know, if you're a, a woman who is more masculine presenting or gender non-conforming, that puts you on the Nazis' radar. The same thing with a gay man. If they were more masculine, they probably could essentially hide, right? They they could be they could remain in the closet, whereas a more feminine acting man um, would would have a better chance of of being arrested and sent to a concentration camp. So talking about intersectionality, right? Of of not just you know, gay or Jewish identity, but also the role that gender um, and gender performance and gender identity played in who who got targeted, who was labeled, and, and who was persecuted uh, is, is really important to keep in keep you know front and center. Yeah, well, and this actually hits really close to my family because um, our Jewish faith isn't talked wasn't talked about for generations mm -hmm. because even though I know I mean I've done an ancestry test and so now I guess I have the ancestry results that not saying that that's what sure not at all proves or determines you're Jewish because I don't believe that right. um just like I don't believe that because your mother's Jewish you're Jewish I think if your father's Jewish of course you're Jewish however you identify if it's whatever you know, you're converting now. Yes, I think you can be Jewish. Um, or in my case, it was great grandparents. And um, 
but they converted to Catholicism. And I, my whole looking into this genealogy of those who fled Europe, uh, fled Italy, fled um, Czech Republic now, um, it would be Czechoslovakia, but um, Hungary, that they just wanted to escape the persecution. And that is a story, though, that I do think comes into the idea of the closet. But in this faith, it's the closet of being Jewish, which you're hiding and not wanting to practice your faith because you're afraid of persecution. And yes, I know that there is complexity in that and you're not claiming your faith outwards. And, you know, you could have a whole philosophical debate, right? Like those who are gay, who didn't claim they were gay because of knowing what would happen to them um, is a moral dilemma. And I guess you could pass judgment on that, those people. But, you know, I'm not trying to pass judgment on my family for not being Jewish, like claiming that they're Jewish because there's a lot of people who hid their faith mm -hmm. or if they could or hid being gay. Mm -hmm. um, and we still see reverberations of that right now because of backlash. And that is something I wanted to get. I know this is a heavy, this is heavy topic now, but um, is what have you found with Pink Triangle Legacies coming out and you unearthing especially these narratives of generations and those who claimed the pink triangle and displayed it for political reasons or for LGBTQ activist reasons. Um, is there a backlash you're seeing of your work or do you feel like sometimes you have to counter the hish, like counter people who question you about your research? You know, I think, so the book has been out just for, for a few months now. And I, I, you know, I'm very grateful that I've not experienced any um, kind of explicit backlash um, so far. I do think that one of the things that I have experienced, um, you know, for now, I guess a couple years of, of doing kind of presentations and, and talking about this research even before the book came out is before in the earlier stages of, of um, I don't know, let's say two years ago, people were, were very much interested in what happened to LGBTQ people during the Holocaust. Like they wanted to, you know, between these 12 years, you know, why did the Nazis view them as enemies of the state? What were the experiences of gay men versus lesbians versus trans people? You know, did, did they relate to each other? How are they similar or different? In the last several months, though, especially since the book come out, has come out, I find people now are much more interested or, or asking questions about the dangers and consequences of historical silencing, right? Of, of course, they want to know what happened, you know, during the Holocaust, but they're like, wait a minute, what is it, what happens when we tell society that we shouldn't study a certain chapter of history. And I know that all of this is, these questions have changed and, and people are interested in kind of the post-war period now because we're in the era of don't say gay bills, right? Yeah. We, are, we are currently as in a national debate about, um, you know, what material is so-called age appropriate for students um, to to have access to, you know, politicians, uh, Republican politicians are making it their, you know, 
they're dying on the hill of of arguing that certain topics, mainly LGBTQ um, or, or, or topics about racism are just not appropriate and they should be banned from the classroom. They should be banned from library shelves. Um, and so we are in this moment uh, in the US today where we are consciously talking about how do we as society write and recognize and teach history. And so suddenly this book, which I, of course, I hoped that it would be relevant when I was writing it. Um, and I and I, I knew that it would be relevant for the LGBTQ community specifically. I could not have anticipated how it is relevant today in a broader conversation about the, again, the dangers of historical censorship and silencing and what kind of impacts that has on communities living today. Yeah, well, we're about to get into... I think a very nuanced discussion. Are you able to do another 10 minutes, Jake? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to hold Jake's time, but because I feel like we're about to head into Christian right-wing nationalism conversations, which, um, you know, not to leave everyone on the edge of their seat, but I know some who are listening here on the podcast, um, it's about to get political, um, which I'm fine with, and I know Jake is, um, cause we have political discussions here all the time in the ivory tower boiler room, but, um, I'm going to now sign off here with you, Jake. Uh, we're going to figuratively, we're staying where we are, but, um, for everyone out there, we're heading into the ivory tower boiler room cafe. So it's on Patreon, just type in ivory tower boiler room and you'll see us on Patreon, um, $5 a month for bonus episodes, which, we're about to have a discussion about this, and I think it's so important to talk through it with you, Jake, in an uncensored way, which we can do on Patreon. Um, you know, we've been uncensored here, but it's a little different when it's for subscribers. Um, yeah. And you're not fearing like sound bites are just going to be thrown out there to the public. Um, okay, so I will see you there, Jake. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. This is just, whew. Yeah, An unnecessary conversation. So I'm so thankful for you to do this. So everyone who's leaving us Pink Triangle Legacies, please get your hands on it. Such important history that Jake has unearthed. And yeah, we'll head on to Patreon. Okay. See you there, Jake. Yeah. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But first, it's only $5, which is less then a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical. If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should, because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer. So much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But 
If you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room? And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, true crime friends and Ivory Tower Boiler Room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content. That includes true crime and academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it, literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but we could use a little bit more if you don't Oh, mind. yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com to actually order our merchandise. So mm -hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room logo, we're gonna make it happen for you. Okay, on that note, happy winter season, everyone. Happy winter. <laughs>